Okay, Revelation, we're going to cover two verses today. What do you think of that? We're going to look at Thyatira, the unrepentant or tolerant church. Hello. Uh, I'm going to read verses uh, 18 and 19 for you. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. And of course, this is the first part of Jesus' message to the church at Thyatira, and that is the commendation. We're going to save the rebuke for next week. So there is a two-verse commendation followed by a more lengthy rebuke. Let's pray. Father God, we lift up this time in your word. We ask that you continue to teach us, lead us, guide us, feed us. You're the good shepherd, Father. We ask you to feed your sheep today and strengthen us, Lord, that we might stand in the battle in these last days. In Jesus' name, amen. So Thyatira, the meaning of the name Thyatira is a perfume, a sacrifice of labor, and we will see that was one of the part of the commendation here of this church that they did labor and work hard for the kingdom of God. It was the smallest of the seven cities, seven churches that we will be looking at here in Revelation 2 and 3. It was uh, located on the banks of the Lycus River, about 35 to 40 miles southeast of Pergamum, which is the church we just finished up on last week. Again, I'll remind you, all of these churches were in what was known as Asia Minor, but today we know this geographical region as Turkey. Interestingly enough, Turkey today is a major Islamic nation. And it shows you what can happen over the course of time when believers don't stand firm, when they do compromise, when they do become tolerant, in the world, that word tolerance is, is a popular word. We all need to be tolerant. But we're going to see what the problem with that is here in just a moment. The city had no special religious significance. We mentioned the uh, in um, Pergamum, the temple to Asclepius, the serpent god, and how that, that uh, Jesus referred to, to that place as the, um, uh, the throne of Satan and so forth. But there was no special religious significance in Thyatira, and it, uh, it wasn't a center of Caesar worship, which covered so much of the Roman Empire, where they elevated Caesar above that of a human emperor or leader to the status of a god. That wasn't particularly prominent here in Thyatira, but it was an important commercial center, even though it was a small city. Thyatira was known as a center of world trade, and for its dyeing industry. If you remember the lady Lydia that's spoken of in Acts chapter 16, we're told a certain woman named Lydia, Acts 16, 14, heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, and she worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And so Lydia was one of Paul's first converts here in the city of Thyatira. They manufactured a purple dye there that came from the madder root, and also from a shellfish called a morex. And that dye, that purple dye, was extremely expensive, so it was definitely a precious commodity that generated a lot of income for the people of Thyatira. Back in Revelation 1, we see this description here of Jesus, the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like fine brass, so if we go back to Revelation 1, this is where we get our first glimpse of the glorified Christ in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, verse 13, Revelation 1, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. His voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. 
And it's very much like the description we see here in chapter 2. As you go on through Revelation 1, we saw how Jesus described himself in a number of ways. In verse 18, he says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive evermore. He identifies himself as the everlasting, immortal, resurrected Son of God. Revelation 2.1, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Verse 8 of chapter 2, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. Verse 12, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. So, Again, if there was any doubt about his identity or who it is that's speaking to the church through the Apostle John, it's, it's made very clear here. Over and over again, he identifies himself with these various descriptive titles and lets us know that it's he, Jesus, who is speaking. Now, he's about to issue a rather stern rebuke to the people of Thyatira. And so... I think he's emphasizing here his position of power and authority to judge sin as the Son of God. Back in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So when we say that he's large and in charge, we're not kidding. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's important to remember as believers. If we get discouraged, if we look around us and we see crazy things happening, we see people in positions of leadership that obviously shouldn't be there, we need to remind ourselves all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus Christ. He's in control, whether it looks like it or not. All authority. John 5, 26 and 27, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. You know, people will say sometimes that we try to maybe help somebody, correct them in some way. We are to do that in love. We're to hold each other accountable to help each other be responsible and so forth. We don't always like it when people do that to us and they don't like it when we do that to them, but we are to do that. And Jesus said, by their fruits you will know them. But you'll hear people say, well, who are you to judge? Right? Like I spoke about a few moments ago. If the only way that you have the right or the ability to help hold your brothers and sisters in Christ accountable is if you are perfect, come back and tell me that when you're perfect. Then it's never going to happen, right? No one will be able to hold anybody accountable. It needs to be done in humility and love, but it needs to be done. Otherwise, it's just a big free-for-all, right? And... Sometimes that's the case in the church because nobody wants to be scrutinized for their own lifestyle, their own behavior. Then they're not willing to hold somebody else accountable. It involves relationship, friendship, right? It's pretty hard to just go up to a stranger and tell them what they're doing wrong. But if you have relationship, if you have fellowship, if you have friendship, you've got a mutual agape love relationship in Christ, then that gives us a place where we can help each other, right? You know, you tell me when I'm doing something wrong, I'll tell you. That's how the body of Christ is supposed to function. So people will say, who are you to judge? And you know, I'm nobody. But Jesus is the judge. He sets the standards. And as believers, we're obligated to do our best to follow his standards, knowing that there are times when we're going to fall short. That's when we rely upon his love, his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, right? So, again, when we're trying to help one another, hold one another accountable, you know, Paul said, when you see your brother, you know, caught up in a sin, you who are spiritual, restore him gently. Not harshly, humbly, but you who are spiritual, again, knowing that doesn't mean we're perfect. It just means we are really making an effort to follow God. And we see somebody that's 
caught up in a sin. They're in trouble. They need your help. This isn't all about you proving to them you're more spiritual than they are. In fact, we're warned to be careful when we do do that, that we don't get drawn into that. So if you have a friend that's got a problem with alcohol, you probably don't want to meet him at the bar to try to help him. Well, you know, he'd probably be more likely to listen to me if I just have a drink with him. Let him know I'm on his side. Not intimidating, right? Oh, uh, well, he doesn't seem to be loosening up yet. Maybe I better have another one. <laughs> the next thing you know it, he's dragging you out of there. So better to meet someplace neutral, right? You get my what I'm saying here? We got to be careful we don't get caught up in it. But we are called to gently restore our brothers and sisters in Christ. But ultimately, Jesus is the judge. The bottom line is, he's the one we will all have to give an account to when we stand before him. So he's establishing himself here as that authority figure. The first and the last. He who has this sharp two-edged sword, which is the truth, his word. He's identifying himself even as he's commending them. So kind of preparing them for what's coming. The title Son of Man is used repeatedly in the Gospels and it emphasizes the humanity of Christ. One of the things that we say about Jesus to fully understand who he is, he's, he's fully God and he's fully man. And so we find in the Gospels many times his humanity being emphasized as he came into this world the first time, born of the Virgin Mary by conception of the Holy Spirit because he was tested or tempted in all manner such as we are and yet without sin. Here in Revelation 2.18, he identifies himself as the Son of God, emphasizing his deity. His humanity was emphasized while he was here on earth. It was a challenge for human beings to identify and relate with a God they'd never seen. A God that they perceived to be out there in the distance somewhere, far away. And yet we know that he's omnipresent, he's everywhere. But what really enabled the entire human race, not just the people of Israel, but the entire human race to wrap their brain around the concept of a loving God is when that God became a man. In John chapter 1, the word came and dwelt among us. And he experienced everything that you and I experienced, yet he never sinned. He died on the cross for our sins and he rose from the dead. So in the Gospels, great emphasis on the Son of Man, his humanity. Here, the emphasis on the fact that he is the Son of God. And he has eyes like flames of fire. In Revelation 1.14, we read the same thing. In the flaming eyes of Christ, you see, if you're a child of God, you should be longing and looking forward to looking into those flaming eyes. For the believer... The flaming eyes of Christ represent his power to purify us. We know that fire, when you're talking about gold and silver, precious metals, they're heated up to extremely high temperatures, right? And what happens, all the impurities rise to the surface. Those are skimmed off and you're left with a pure gold, a pure silver, the refiner's fire. And so for the, the child of God, the flames, the fire... It's a great thing. It's an encouraging thing. It's his ability and desire to purify his bride. So there's no fear there. And there's a, there's a power there and a strength. But if you're not a believer, then those fiery eyes represent his power to judge. And then his feet, like fine or burnished brass or bronze, indicative of his majesty, his glory, as he walked in the midst of the churches. So here we have the commendation, verse 19. 
Man, I can't wait to see him. It's going to be awesome. Amazing. And again, in order to see him and survive, we're going to need our immortal, imperishable, incorruptible, eternal bodies. That's why we have to cast off these garments, if you will, these imperfect, impure, mortal bodies. We have to receive an eternal, heavenly body so that we can enter his presence. That's how awesome and powerful he is. Here we go, verse 19. I know your works, or some translations say deeds. I know your deeds. Now, we know as believers, hopefully we're all good and rooted and grounded in our theology to the point that we know we're not saved by our good works. Anybody here today believe you can work your way into heaven? Bible says all of our good works are like filthy rags in God's sight. So as believers, we don't attempt to earn our salvation through our works because that's not possible. But as believers, we are to bear good fruit. We don't do good deeds or good works to be saved. We do them because we are saved. But it's a good thing that those don't save us because there will never be enough of those. We would have to be perfect, which we're not. I know your works, your deeds. As always, this is an important thing to remember as well because sometimes we get our nose out of shape because we don't feel like we're getting the recognition we deserve. People aren't noticing enough all the good things we are doing. Well, fine, if they don't appreciate it, forget it. I just won't do it anymore. Really, were you doing it for them or for him? Because Paul says, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do it as unto him to the best of your ability. Because at the end of the day, I'm not going to stand before Mark and he's not going to stand before me. We're all going to stand before God. So the important thing is what he sees, what he knows. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You know that one? That's what we should all be working for, working towards. I know your works. I know your deeds. So no matter whether other people notice or not, and the fact of the matter is, even if they notice, you could be their hero today and their villain tomorrow. You realize that? I experience that a lot. I can't tell you how many times. In fact, I hate to say this, but usually the people who pay you the most compliments are the ones carrying the biggest knife in their back pocket. So, I don't recommend doing anything for God in the hope that you will get human recognition for it. It can turn on a dime. It's like being the quarterback of a football team. You win the game today, you throw the game-winning touchdown, you're a hero. Next week, you throw the game-losing interception, you're the dog, right? But God, I know your works, I know your deeds, says Jesus. And he's the one that really counts. And that applies in every area of our lives, including our marriages, Sometimes we feel unappreciated by our spouses, right? Oh man, I can't believe this. I've done so much for him or her. They don't even appreciate it. But God appreciates it. That's one thing that will help you tremendously in your marriage is even with regards to your spouse, do it for Jesus. You're doing it because of your love for him. You're honoring your husband. You're honoring your wife. Again, we're all imperfect human beings. Maybe sometimes they don't deserve it, but neither do you. We do it for God. And when we put God first, everything else tends to fall into place. Our hard work does not go unnoticed by God. And now Jesus goes on to describe these deeds specifically. First of all, love, it's agape, the unconditional love that comes from the Holy Spirit. The kind that God gives to us and he expects us to give to each other. Remember Ephesus, the first church we looked at, 
also had good works and good deeds. But Ephesus had lost her first love, remember? Here, in spite of the rebuke that's coming, Jesus does commend them for their agape, for their love, for their unconditional love for one another. John 13, 34, Jesus told his disciples a new commandment. I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. That you also love one another. Man, that's a tall order, folks. And be honest, it's one that we, it's one that we often fall short on. Yes, we all know that we're called to love one another, right? But Jesus says, as I have loved you. How has he loved us? He laid down his life for us. Now that may not mean physically dying for someone. It could. But laying down your life. Jesus said, if any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Dying to self. So if we're to love one another as Jesus has loved us, that means we have to put others before ourselves whether it be a friend, a family member. If we're to love one another as Christ has loved us, that means putting that other person before yourself. But even as believers, we continue to battle that selfish gene, don't we? It's, it's built into us. It's part of our sin nature. And only by the power of God's Holy Spirit can we overcome it. But they're commended because they were loving one another with unconditional love. Romans 13, 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now there are some who are still trying to put, it was happening from the first century on, and Paul, Paul dealt with it, people who are trying to put believers under the law. But Paul teaches that love, agape love, is the fulfillment of the law. He who loves another has fulfilled the law. Thou shalt not kill. Well, if, you, if you're loving someone, you're not going to kill them, right? Thou shalt not steal. If you love somebody, you don't steal from them, and on and on it goes. If you love someone, you don't covet what they have, whether it be their husband, their wife, their property. So agape love is the fulfillment of the law. And Jesus fulfilled the law when he came and died on the cross for our sins. And then 1 Peter 4, 8, we, we quote this one a lot around here. Above all things, have fervent love, intense love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. When we're really loving one another as Christ has loved us, we don't get offended with one another every time we turn around, do we? Because no matter how hard we try, we all say and do stupid things at times, don't we? My wife knows all too well. She's not in the room at the moment. I mean, over it's just like Paul said, that which I would not do, I do. And that which I would do, I do not. Do you know that? Why did I do that? Why did I say that? I'm so stupid. You ever, you ever think that about yourself? Maybe it's just me, I don't know. But And then I pray, Lord, please help me not to say stupid things. And then lo and behold, I just said another stupid thing. Anybody else have that problem? Is it just me? I mean, I know I'm stupider than most. <sighs> That's the struggle. But you know what? We are overcomers in Christ. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. But the important thing is to never forget who we are with him and who we are without him, right? Some people seem to get to this place in their lives as believers where they think that they've made it. Yeah, I used to sin. Not anymore, man. I'm good to go. That's a scary place to be. You ever been around somebody like that? You know, I'll, I'll pray for you, bro. You know, <laughs> as if they don't need prayer, right? No, no, as long as we stay humble. God 
resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. As long as you remain humble, you're going to get all the grace God's got to give. But if you get prideful, oh, the devil's in my way. No, God is resisting you, friend, because you're steeped in pride. It's not the devil. The devil can't stop you. If God is with you, if God be for us, who can be against us? If you're on God's side and if you were humble before him, no one in heaven or on earth can stop you. But if you're full of pride, I can tell you who's getting in your way and it ain't the devil. It's God. Okay. This love manifests itself in deeds. Commended for their deeds, commended for their love. They're they're intertwined. This agape love manifests itself in deeds. Caring, helping, supporting, bearing, bearing one another's burdens, kindness, consideration. Apparently, these believers at Thyatira were a very loving group. It's going to get interesting, though, but we get time we get to the rebuke next week. I, I found it interesting. I've, I've thought about this more than once, but most churches call what happens like what we're doing here right now on a Sunday morning, an evening service, midweek, They call it the service, right? Are you going to the service, the worship service? But what does that word mean, service? Are we coming to serve? The the word service would indicate people coming to serve, would it not? And we have some that do that very faithfully, very consistently, to the point of being overworked, to be honest. The word service in the Greek Diaconian, we get the word deacon. It means ministry. Service means ministry. And I've, I've asked this question many times. Do most people come to church looking to serve or to be served? Both can happen. And that's my calling. I'm up here to serve, to serve you, to, to do my best to teach you the Word of God and sometimes to lead in worship. But... I think everyone who comes to church should come with a heart attitude to serve. Even if it's just to give somebody, you know, in pre-pandemic days, a nice big hug, a smile, right? A handshake, right? To extend the love and the warmth of Christ to one another. But sadly, I think, not so much in this church, but in the church in general, my suspicion is that the majority of people come looking to be served. And they determine whether or not they're going to go to church and how often and where based upon how good they think the service is. Get it? I'm not going back to that restaurant again. The service is terrible. Right? And so you'll hear people say, well, I went there, but nobody talked to me. Nobody was friendly. Well, did you talk to anyone? Did you go up and introduce yourself to anyone? Did you make any effort to reach out? Or were you just waiting back to see what kind of service they would render to you? Right? I would encourage each and every one of us to really pray about that and work on that when we come together, as we are and will continue to do. Come with that heart attitude Nothing wrong with coming with a sense of expectation, expecting to receive from God. Expecting to enter into his presence in worship, expecting to be fed in the scriptures. But at the same time, we can come not only thinking about what I can receive today, but what can I give out? Somebody may be really down in the dumps. They need some encouragement need somebody to talk to, need some prayer. It's not just my job or Pastor Ed's job or some of the other leaders. This is the body of Christ ministering to one another. The head, the hands, the feet, the eyes, the nose, the ears, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, speaking about the various parts of the body. When one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. I don't know how many of you saw an old school horror movie called The Hand. This guy gets his hand severed, but the thing has a life of its own and it's crawling all around. It's, that's a horror movie. That's not normal, right? 
You don't normally see an appendage of the human body moving around by itself. It's all interconnected. So, anyway. Service, serving one another. James 2.14 through 18. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Again, the works don't save us, but they are evidence that we have a true, genuine, what I call saving faith. Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of you says to him, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, God bless you, hope it all works out for you, but you do not give them the things that are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works, Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So James is telling us, not that we're saved by works, but that if we possess a genuine saving faith, then that should be followed up by good works. Again, it's an ongoing challenge. It's an ongoing battle because... It's the flesh battling the spirit. The flesh wants to do everything for me. The spirit wants us to do for others. And so daily we should be seeking God for the infilling of his Holy Spirit. Remember uh, when the children of Israel in the wilderness and God sent them manna from heaven? Do you remember that? And it tasted like honey. They were like honey wafers. Only perfect nutritionally, not like the sugar foods that we eat. But so the people got this bright idea. Wow. Hey, man, maybe we could save up some of this manna. Right? Do you remember what happened? They tried to save it up for the next day when they got into their backpack or whatever. It was filled with maggots. Remember? You know what the message there is? Give us this day our daily bread. We need to seek God daily, not only for our physical sustenance. In fact, he says, don't even worry about that. That's a done deal. Matthew chapter 6. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. The flowers of the field, the birds of the air are clothed with fine garments and so forth. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. When Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread, he was talking about everything we need for this day, spiritually, emotionally, physically, mentally, But it's just like that manna. We can't store it up. It has to be a daily seeking of God. I don't know about you guys. I need him every day. Not just once a week. So service. We have love. We have the works, the deeds the various things that Jesus is commending them for, and then faith. Now, not only the faith for salvation, which they've obviously already obtained, but faith to serve and faith to persevere. The next one is patience or perseverance. It means patient endurance under trials and tribulations, which we know that all the early believers experienced to one degree or another, including those at the church in Thyatira. James 1.3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience or perseverance. Let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, which it doesn't mean we'll be perfected in this life, but it means we'll come to a place of maturity in Christ. That's God's desire for us. We're born again. We call new believers baby Christians. And so uh, we know what the types of things that babies tend to do. And so baby Christians can be expected to do some of the same things on a spiritual level. But as you grow in Christ and you mature, you reach that place. You may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking nothing. Because you come to understand that everything you really need, you have in Christ. The testing of your faith produces patience or perseverance, and they're commended 
the people of Thyatira for their faith and their patience or perseverance. Matthew 24, 12, because lawlessness will abound. By the way, this verse I'm reading to you right now, we're living in this time. Jesus said it 2,000 years ago, we're here. Lawlessness will abound. Hello? Watch your TV screen, look out your window. We're here. The love of many will grow cold. Folks, if you never really truly possessed love, agape, God's love, it can't grow cold unless it used to be hot. You follow me? I believe when Jesus said this, he wasn't speaking of non-believers. He was speaking of believers, or at least those who identify as believers, that in the last days, that's what this passage is about in Matthew 24, the last days, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. When you're facing constant daily lawlessness all around you, the danger is that your heart will become hardened. Do you know what I'm talking about? That's a challenge, folks. This is a warning from Jesus. You might say, well, there's always been lawlessness, but I'm going to tell you, historically, most cultures have been very heavy-handed when it comes to people breaking the law. There are still places in the Middle East where if you steal something, they cut off your hand. Here they give you a Visa gift card and send you on your way. I'm not kidding. New York City, there's no bail anymore. The guy that beat that cop up in New York, did you see the pictures of his bloodied face? Irish policeman? The guy was released, no bail. We are living in the time of lawlessness, I'm telling you. I definitely don't support communism, socialism, any of that. But in a communist country, you break the law. It's hasta la vista, baby. What we have in this country now is complete lawlessness. And it will spread all over the globe. It already is. The Antifa is not just in America. It's all over the place. Europe, you name it. Black Lives Matter, all over the globe. And by the way, Black Lives Matter is not about black lives. Did you know that? In fact, the majority of the Black Lives Matter posters are white. It's about socialism, Marxism. It's about the destruction of the current system. And not just in America, but all over the world. Which, gee, I think I know how to fix that. If we just had a one-world government, one-world economy, and a one-world religion, we could fix all this. You see where it's leading? It's exactly where it's going. They're going to let it get so crazy and so far out of hand, the only answer will be total totalitarianism, total control. It'll flip from one extreme to the other. Watch, it's coming. And that will usher in the rule of the Antichrist. Because lawlessness will abound. See, yeah, maybe there's always been a degree of lawlessness in the world, but now it's abounding. The love of many will grow cold. What's the point? But he who endures or overcomes, he who endures to the end will be saved. They're being commended, the people of Thyatira, for their patience, for their perseverance. You could say they are overcomers. And that's been an ongoing theme in this message to the churches in Revelation. To him who overcomes. That's why the, the old typical once saved, always saved message just doesn't cut it. God knows every heart. He knows who's true and who isn't. He knows who's saved and who's not. But if you approach your faith with this once saved, always saved mentality, therefore once I'm saved I can do whatever I want, I wouldn't recommend it. That's not an overcomer. Because what's going to happen is you're going to be one of those who becomes tolerant, unrepentant. And we're going to see next week how they became tolerant of these false teachings and false doctrines. And that's what happens. 
If you're not overcoming, you are being overcome. You see how that works? I've used the analogy before in our walk with God. I didn't originate it, but I got it from somebody. Your walk in Christ is like riding a bicycle uphill. You know, you're pressing on towards that goal of the high calling in Christ. As long as you keep pedaling, some are able to pedal faster than others, right? You could be cranking it along, and here comes uh, here comes Randy. Zoom! I don't know if you're a good cyclist or not. <laughs> On your electric, he's got an electric bike. Now that's one way to do it. <laughs> the problem is, what happens? You're going uphill and you stop pedaling. What happens? <laughs> right? You don't just stand still. You go crashing down. And that's, we need to view our Christian life in that, in that way. As long as we keep pedaling, whether it be slow or fast, we're okay. We're moving on towards the mark of the high calling in Christ Jesus. We stop pedaling. Down we go. That's overcoming. That's perseverance. He who endures or overcomes to the end will be saved. See, if you stand before the Lord and he says, well, what happened to you, Billy Bob? You started off well, but I notice here you know, of course, God knows all things. But let's just pretend he has. A, he does have a book of life, you know. But I, wow, it was about 25, 30 years ago, you just kind of bailed out on me. Stop going to church, stop reading your Bible, stop praying. You just pretty much gave up the Christian life. Yeah, but Lord, I got saved in 1958. Really? But where's your fruit? What happened? You didn't overcome. You didn't endure. Now, again, I'm not the judge. It'll be God who decides who's truly his and who isn't. But the scriptures are very clear and very plain that he who endures to the end will be saved. Well, I don't really believe in God anymore. I used to, so I'm just hoping and praying if he is real that he'll still take me in. I don't know. You want to take that chance? Pastor Chuck always used to say we are eternally secure in Christ. So it's an easy question. Are you in Christ or not? Well, I don't know. Well, then you better find out. Are you in Christ? No, nah, I used to be. Well, then I can't say for sure. Only God can tell. But it sounds to me like you may not be going there. Are you in Christ right now? And do you intend to stay in Christ? We are eternally secure in Christ and then he goes on, Jesus says, as for your works or your deeds, wow, this, this is a pretty amazing commendation, but you better get ready for the rebuke too. The last are more than the first. So he's saying, you guys have been progressing. The Thyatira Christians were doing more as time went on. In contrast to the Ephesian church, we did less. The Ephesian church was kind of drifting, diminishing. They'd lost their first love. Thyatira, on the other hand, was moving forward. They were growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, which according to Peter is what we should be doing. We'll close with that passage, 2 Peter 3.15. Consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, his patience, his long-suffering, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught, and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Peter warned about, and Paul both, about those who would come and twist and mangle the word of God, the scriptures. And I'm telling you, that's going on in big supply today. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness being led away with the error of the wicked. That could be the error of the wicked outside the church, but it could also be the error of the wicked inside the church. He's warning, not being led away, falling from your own steadfastness, but grow. So what's the antidote? What's the remedy? Again, it's just like I said, you're pedaling uphill or, if you're, or you're rolling downhill. Grow, but grow so that you don't fall from your steadfastness, so that you don't become led away with the error of the wicked. 
grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So the antidote to falling away, not being an overcomer, not enduring, is to make sure that you continue to grow. And what two things? Grace, that's God's unmerited favor, coming to know and to understand more and more the richness of his grace, the, all the wonderful blessings he's given us in Christ that we don't deserve, and knowledge. As we study the word of God individually and together, we're growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is the antidote to falling away, rolling downhill, falling from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. It's growth. And so someone might say, you know, I don't, I don't need to go to church to be saved. Well, you know, technically you're right. All you need to do to be saved is to confess your sins before God, acknowledge Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the one who died on the cross for your sins, the one who rose from the dead, inviting him to come into your life to be your Lord and Savior. That's all you have to do to be saved. But, see, he paid the price. I've used this analogy before too. Someone gives you the gift of a brand new automobile. Here's the keys. It's all yours. You didn't have to pay for it. Purely a gift, grace, unmerited favor, because I can guarantee you, no matter how nice you are, you didn't deserve somebody to give you a new car. <laughs> right? Or maybe you did. I don't know. But now you have the responsibility for what? Maintenance, right? How would that person feel who gave you the car? They come over a couple years, two or three years later, the car's sitting in the driveway, the tires are flat, the paint's all faded out. Oil is dripping down out the bottom of the motor. It won't run. How would that person feel? I wonder if that's how God feels when he looks at us and sees that we're not maintaining our salvation, our faith. You see, growing in the grace and the knowledge. Of the Lord. Yeah, you don't have to go to church to be saved. But if you want to maintain your relationship, you need fellowship. You need worship. You need teaching. All these things, right? The apostles' doctrine, right? Prayer, the breaking of bread and the fellowship. Those early tenets of the Christian church. In fact, they met together every day. Do you know that? We struggle to get people together once a week. The early Christians met every day. We live in a time now where people are so distracted and going in so many different directions and so busy. We're lucky if we can get everybody together once a week. But it's important. Paul said, do not forsake the assembling or gathering together of the saints. And all the more as the day, big D, approaches. Do you know the day is right before us? We're at that time. And the enemy is doing a good job of keeping people away from church because of this pandemic. And I hear people every day say, well, you know, I really like sitting at the kitchen table drinking a cup of coffee and watching church on TV. You know what I mean? <laughs> Maybe I'll have a cigar. <laughs> we need to be together all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, thank God for those who can't. We know there are people who are shut-ins. They're handicapped. They're sick, whatever. Thank God for the medium of uh, Internet, TV, and so forth. Praise God for that. But when, it, when it's at all humanly possible, the body of Christ needs to be getting together. I need to see your face. You need to see my face. We need to be together. And we have no idea, perhaps, how much more we may need each other in the days to come. Look around you. Let's stand. Let's all bow our heads for a moment, close our eyes. I wanna, before we give our closing prayer, I want to give opportunity for those this morning who might need prayer for some reason, whether it's for salvation, whether it's to recommit your life to Christ, uh, whether it's for health, for physical healing, for financial provision, whatever it might be. We look to God as our source for virtually everything. So raise your hand if you'd like prayer right now. I want to pray for those of you out there. That, quite a few. And God knows your heart. He knows exactly why you're lifting your hands right now. So I want to pray for you. Father, I lift up all those right now who have raised their hands up to you this morning. Lord, you know each heart. You know what's going on. 
Lord, if there's anyone here that needs to accept Christ as Lord and Savior, pray that you should help them to do that right now, to confess their sins before you, to invite Jesus to come and live inside of them. And I encourage you to do that if that's you. Lord, for others who maybe have been drifting away but desire to draw near to you once again, to become an overcomer, to endure, not to give up, not to fall back, ask you to strengthen them now as well. Lord, those who need financial provision, these are difficult times. People have lost their jobs. Some people have unemployment, some do not. Lord, you know each heart, you know what's going on. Some may be looking for a new job and can't seem to find it. Lord, help them, whatever the case it may be, that you would take care of them as you have promised to do, Lord, to meet our physical needs as we seek first your kingdom. Father, for those with health issues, we know that you are the God who heals us. You're the great physician. Lord, we don't always understand the afflictions that come upon us other than the fact that it's just a normal part of living in these mortal bodies. But Lord, we do pray for health, for strength, for healing, for those who are looking for that this morning, God, that you would encourage them, strengthen them, and do a healing work in their physical bodies. And also mentally, emotionally, these are definitely trying times in that regard as well. Many people are very stressed out and fearful. We ask you, Lord, to drive all fear from the hearts and minds of your children, your people. Fill us with hope, faith, trust that we will not be overcome by fear, that we will all have the mind of Christ, we will all have that sound mind that you have given us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, you know each heart, you know each one. We ask that you would just give them the desires of their hearts as they seek your face here today. And we thank you for this time together, Lord, and the, and, the, and the awesomeness of your word, the incredible spiritual food contained within these divinely inspired words that we find in the Holy Bible, the Old and the New Testament. We thank you for it. Pray that you'd receive now our final offering of worship as we prepare to depart today. We pray blessings upon travel, upon fellowship. Uh, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>